Hi, this is Cam Smith, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Eat It, a weekly radio show about food and drink broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website. Hey, guys, why don't we eat? Dear Doc, or the boss, I'll have your spam. I love it. I'm having spam, spam, spam. What have you I've done my, to me, man? I've got my L plates on today. Clearly, it's the wrong microphone. It's the right microphone. Hello, Cameron. I must be back at Triple R. I can smell Glen 20 on this pop cover. A very, very good afternoon to everyone. It is 12.03 here at the beautiful R's down, in, uh, down on Community Radio Corner, <laughs> we like to call it. Am I detecting a slightly different twang in your voice, Cam? It sounds a little sounds bit... Sounds a bit different, doesn't it? A little it? husky. And yeah. I also noticed uh, we weren't here last week. No. You are in bed. Uh, it, was, it was a very, very weird Sunday. Because, mm. dear listener, I don't know if you've, yeah, you've sort of noticed, but I've kind of been here for most of COVID and yep. everything. Yep. And uh, it was a very, very odd thing just being in bed, feeling not the best, uh, and listening to the R's and not on the road. So, yes, I'm sorry that I couldn't make it in last week, but... You were struck down by the novel coronavirus. Uh-huh. I pulled a double liner, mate. <sighs> double liner. <laughs> Ba-boom. Uh, yeah. But that was 10 days ago now, so yes. you know, you're, um, in fact, you're up and about, but you're not 100%. Yes, that's, uh, so far as uh, science is concerned, uh, mm. I'm not good. Dr Shane wouldn't let me in the studio, though. But, um, <laughs> I, just don't, I just don't think he likes I think he, No, yeah, I think that with... could be it. Yeah, no, it's just like I've got an excuse that I don't actually have to speak with him. Uh, but, yeah, what an interesting journey it's been. 
Um, uh, as you can tell, it um, hasn't affected my brain in any way at all. <laughs> I do feel like I'm thinking through cotton wool uh, a little bit and uh, I will apologise in advance for any... Uh, Oh, not gaffes, but just not being as entertaining as uh, or informative as the hour can be. Mm. But, uh, yes, did get that. Uh, have been in bed. Did get out of the bed and did some tours down to the greenhouse yesterday for... Still busy? Is it busy? I wasn't in yeah, the city it was. this weekend. It was, it's been... it was reasonably busy. Mm. Um, probably maybe about half this... Um, uh, but, uh, oh, my God, going up and down those stairs. <laughs> the greenhouse is like, <laughs> all right, we're just going to show you upstairs... You really want to go to the rooftop? Okay, I'm going to show you the rooftop. So Yo's going to have to put a lift in the next one. He will. Yeah, put some environmentally Either friendly that or lift. Maybe a, a bosun's chair and drag me up the side or something like that. Uh, but yes, I gave full disclosure to people as they came in and said, look, you know, I've been under the weather, but apparently it's all good. But mm. uh, it was nice down there. It was a beautiful autumn day. My God, it was a pearl of these. The yesterday. weather, uh, it's, it's almost spring-like, isn't it? Because we've got the sort of warmish northerly winds coming in. Mm. Um, mm. But clear skies. I reckon today's the last day, though. Dare I say it? No, no. Mm. It, it, it is autumn. Yes. Because spring, you don't get that red shift in the light. That is true. You don't get that colour change in the foliage around. I mean, looking down the arrow was just so beautiful. And the promise... Of a cool night for sleeping. Mm. That is why autumn is great for me, mm-hmm. as well as great produce and you know, and uh, you know, there's vintage coming in too. Yes, and funny we should say that we are will be speaking to Duncan Butchanan. Yes, that's according to Siri, his, his, the pronunciation. <laughs> Duncan <laughs> Buchanan. Yes, uh, we're going to be speaking to him about uh, vintage and uh, possibly if lower alcohol wines are valid. Yes. That could be interesting. We have seen a trend in uh, reduced alcohol or no alcohol beverages over the last few years. So I would almost say that's mainstream now and that's just part of the thing. When um, you talk to people, they go, yeah, just going to have a couple of mid-strength lagers. Yes, or even uh, zero alcohol beers now. There's a whole section yes. at, your, at your big discount bulk liquor outlet you can get your... I've seen those. Some of them taste pretty good. The green and red and black cans. There's a few of them. Heineken. Yes. yes. Yeah, they're very popular. Yeah. Um, and also now coming to wine is not necessarily an increase in no alcohol wine, but low alcohol wine. But there's different ramifications of um, mm. if you're going to strip alcohol out, whether you strip out the character. But I'm not going to steal Duncan's thunder. No. Because otherwise he'll come charging down the road and want to give me a smack in the chops. <laughs> so um, we don't want to go down that thing because we don't advocate violence. No. Uh, here on this food show, because that would be churlish mm. of us. Uh, but what we will be doing, dear listener, mm. is, um, you know, we haven't been able to travel overseas that much no. over the last couple of years. And uh, I thought it'd be a really, really great idea just to pick up on this Easter Sunday, this day of uh, of much chocolate, mm. which we want to just mention something about we as do. well. We do, hold that thought. I hold that thought about the, the chocolatey experience you have. But I thought maybe we might just do a little virtual trip to Venice, hmm. to Veneto. And we're going to ask, what have the Venetians ever done for us? <laughs> huh? Huh? 
I mean, you know, what made them so great during the bloody Middle Ages? Mm -hmm. Well, there's good answers to that one. Um, And uh, we will be speaking to author and uh, travel writer Amiko Davies, who um, I was lucky enough... Honoured, in fact, yes, uh, to do a great demonstration with a big spaghetti uh, mm-hmm. down at the uh, the market where I might have caught COVID actually, but, uh, <laughs> um, but a good time was had by oh, all. But a great yeah. time was had by all. Eh? <laughs> um, and uh, she's written this awesome book called Cinnamon and Salt, published by Hardy Grant. Yes, and it's um, a book about uh, Cicchetti. In Venice. About what? Cicchetti, my friend. Mm. Uh, and Cicchetti is uh, the Italian word for uh, like a hors d'oeuvre or a tapas. Um, so it's, uh, it's an interesting book that talks about uh, the heart and soul of this amazing, decadent, mm-hmm. incredible city at the crossroads of civilizations and a city that monopolized the trade of spice. Mm. During the Middle Ages, can't wait. Mm. Hope you can't wait either. So yeah, so we did that. Um, we were going to talk. Oh, you wanted to do a little bit about a place in town that you still reckon is ace, is valid. And you know, we talk a lot about the top end of town and fine dining and mid-level dining, and mm. but um, quietly for the last forty years, still just uh, serving their trade there on Swanson Street. One of my favourite places to get a lunch, and it's rare we say this on Eat It, but it's actually it's quite good value. It's quite cheap, and I'm talking of a place mm-hmm. called Gopal's on Swanson Street. Now, Gopal's is a uh, you say Gopal? I do say Gopal. Maybe I'm Gopal. saying Gopal. Gopal, not Gopal. No, no, I say Gopal. Maybe, maybe it's tomato, tomato. Could be Gopal. Um, vegetarian, vegan, yes. um, Hari Krishna cuisine. It is bloody delicious. And mm. the, I only mentioned because I went there uh, recently. And whereabouts, just, whereabouts is it? So it's on Swanson Street. You've got to be brave and go up a staircase. You go, mm. ooh, ooh, not sure what's up here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it is, you know, it's counter service and you get a little tray and they put a plate and they sort of put the food on the plate and you, you slide the, the tray, tray along. You get the prison tray. tray. Yeah, yes. Nice. Um, but what you also get is uh, really good, fresh, nutritious, uh, vegan and or vegetarian food, depending on your persuasion. And it's it's really cheap. Like you can you can go there and, and pay their, their feast special, I think is $13, and you get a plate piled high of really delicious curries and salads. Uh, you get a soup and you get a choice of drink. It's um, if, you've, if you've lived you in Melbourne... You showed me the picture and, and I've got to say... Looked awesome. It is delish. I mean, it, it was it was a kaleidoscope of um, kaleidoscope of colours and textures, um, and pff, healthy, very healthy. Yeah, yeah. It's good. It's good soul food. So if you've never been to Gopal's, I reckon it's a good valid part of our of our dining scene. But as I say, you've got to be brave. So it's on Swanson Street, <laughs> just north of uh, Little Collins. You don't have to be that No. Brave. you just got to no, wander you, upstairs. Okay, you just, yeah, yes. Wander upstairs where you see the big Gopal sign and then uh, you just grab a tray and yeah. then um, order whatever it is you want. And you can, and if you get a good spot overlooking Swanson Street, you can watch the trams go past as you eat your lunch. It's great. Oh, that'd be nice. And what's the view? Is that Town Hall sort of? No, it's a block, it's a block north of Town Hall. So it's sort of looking over... Um, that little cafe there on the corner whose name I forget. That one. Mm. Yeah, okay. My brain's not working that well, so I can just go, well, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a great recommendation. What was that dessert that you had? Oh, halva. They have halva every day, which what, is like what a, is halva? It's a Hari Krishna sort of a sweet sort of pudding. Because I know halva as being like a Middle Eastern sweet meat that mm-hmm. you make from um, crushed sesame seeds, which mm-hmm. is 
absolutely divine, but this looked a little bit different. Yeah, I don't know whether that. it's that or not. Okay, but it was lovely. But it's awesome. Go Pals. Go Pals, vegetarian. I think you've got a website you can Go Pals. <laughs> They're our favourite sporting And you're team. right, maybe it is pronounced Gopals. Maybe, maybe I've just been affectationing it for my entire life. No, nah, it's whatever works for you. It really is. No, whatever, you know, it's, it's a valid, you know, for, for you. I'm going to cough, excuse me. All right. <coughs> while couldn't, you cough. couldn't get the cough button. I was also, <laughs> while we're just um, having a look back, mm. uh, oh, maybe let's go with what, uh, what's been filling your stomach in the last week. Well, I just wanted to say that um, I just wanted to just say a big thanks to the Chinese. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Chinese. You, you, you guys rock with, Each and with all you. your culinary history. Yes. Uh, because I was going to have a soup, uh, but uh, the soup, shall we say, wasn't in a state to be eaten. Soup's was, off. Soup's off. That's it. That's probably the <laughs> best way I said. So I had a dilemma. I was completely delirious, mm. like weakened and just, I must feed myself something. Um, and um, I ended up making a congee. Yes. <clears throat> because I had this really, really great chicken stock, mm. so I had the building blocks of yep. it, and I had some uh, good mushroom shiitakes. Luckily enough, I had a bunch of coriander and some spring onions. Yes. And that was pretty much all I needed. Mm. So uh, away I went, a bit of rice in there, jasmine rice, which is the the one that is called for for a good mm. congee because of its fragrant nature. Yes. Saved my ass. <laughs> Sorry, folks, but it really did. When you, you know, once it was there, it's like, oh, yeah, it's thickening. And it was actually waiting for the bloody rice to break down. <laughs> it's going, oh, I can still see the rice kernels. So you learn a lot about yourself when you're under the weather. What do you actually feel like eating? You know, it's not the time for culinary experiments. It's oh, just, God, no. What do I want to put in my belly to make me feel better? I, I just need some warming, soothing stuff, and congee ticks all those boxes. Yeah. And nutrition-wise, it's just like a great big – it was just like a big old hug. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, it kind of saved me. But um, going from congee, we wanted to talk a little bit about that that chocolate Easter egg in front of you. You because might, be, might be having some right now. You might be having some right now. Given today's yeah. Easter Sunday. Or maybe you have gone for the Australian route and had the chocolate bilby. The bilby. The bilby, which um, still I reckon good luck with all that, but, you know. <laughs> well, they're having a go. There's more, but, you know, there's more and more of them over the years. Um, yes. You know, and, yeah, why not? Why not? If we're going to anthropomorphise a religious experience. Yes. Let's go full out and um, and do it in a southern hemisphere context. Yes, huh? and why not? Why not? So whilst you're eating your bilbies and your chocolate eggs, yeah. um, our friend Danny Vallant has actually written a really interesting long-form article for the Good Weekend, published this weekend, around some of the concerns with the supply chain of chocolate at the risk of, you know, putting you off your, your Easter egg. Hope it doesn't do that. Or but... maybe giving you the guilts for um, yes. having, you know... It... Participating in the free market. Yes, so cocoa farming um, is not very well regulated. No, um, really? And there can be some very negative outcomes to put that chocolate on your plate. So well recommended if you just want to search. Um, actually, we'll tweet it. We'll tweet it out the link for uh, the excellent article on chocolate supplies and how you can also ethically source some chocolate. There, of course, there Good. are lots of producers yeah. filling that gap. And there was also another article that um, I really want to speak to Danny about at some stage, and I'm mm. sure Radio Marinara have been uh, covering this, but that's been the uh, the closing off of the bay to uh, uh, anchovy netting. Uh, 
which uh, has been, and I think that's the very last thing, the last commercial fisheries uh, other than uh, maybe mussel farming mm-hmm. um, that's, that's left on this bay, which seems kind of crazy that, mm-hmm. you know, we, we're not able to eat from our backyard. Mm-hmm. I know Cor- uh, Richard Cornish has spoken about this. Yes. Passionate about that. Danny Valams has written extensively and well about this. That's mm-hmm. another thing. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we might try and get Danny on the blower in the next few weeks to have a chat about all that sort yes. of stuff, I think. Yes. Yes. Triple. Ah. Uh. 12.23 here on 3 RFM. It's so lovely that you've joined us for Easter, everybody. Thank you for uh, for being along. And uh, also doubly, triply delighted that uh, Amika Davies has uh, joined us. A very, very good afternoon. Welcome to the Ars, Amika. Hi, thank you for having me. It's been a, it's been a long time since we've seen each other. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> couple of weeks ago, uh, down there at the Queen Victoria Market, and you were feeding me really, really beautiful. Uh, they were sort of like deep fried sandwiches with uh, fried, beautiful. Fr- yeah, fried mozzarella fried sandwiches. Fried mozzarella <laughs> with a little bit of anchovy in there, and then you were uh, you were delighting me with the uh, first of all with your book, uh, but also um, just we were talking about the the history of a. A, a trading powerhouse uh, of uh, the Middle Ages and of uh, Renaissance Mediterranean and Italy, I suppose, couldn't we? We speak of uh, Venice, of course. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, they, they know Venice as, as it is now, um, mm. but they don't actually know anything about its history. And and therefore they don't know, you know, also what makes the food really special in Venice. Do you know, I, um, have, a, I have a terrible confession for you, yeah. and, and I feel really terrible even saying it, but, you know, when I think of Venice, for some reason I think of Madonna. Oh, really? <laughs> and she did that terrible clip in Venice, and she's rolling around in a... In a gondolier, I think it was yeah, like a virgin. I think it was yeah, that was yeah. the thing. But but no, there is more to Venice than Madonna writhing around on a on a gondola, is there not? Yeah, yeah, there is. And and, and so um, much so that I should probably um, sorry, you have to excuse me because I'm running on about seventy percent. Matt keeps whipping me into into shape, uh, but uh, I'm remiss in saying that of course you have written this great book. It is called. Cinnamon and Salt, and it's about Cicchetti in Venice, and it is about the city. So, yeah, let's uh, let's go back and say, why is Venice more important than a Madonna film clip done way back in the eighties? <laughs> well, I think um, I think the thing that that makes Venice really, really special and and completely unique in the whole yes. of the Italian peninsula, what makes it so different, what makes the food so different there, is the fact that in the Middle Ages it was an extremely powerful and extremely dynamic um, sort of melting pot of a city. And there was this, um, you know, it was sort of the pantry of Europe. It had um, access to all of the spices from the East, exclusive only through Venice. Mm. And you had this mix of different people, all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different um, jobs and roles. And, um, and this sort of, this, you know, melting pot city, there was an exchange of, of ingredients, of um, ideas. cuisines, yeah. of ideas, yes. 
And then, you know, the printing press was also invented in Venice um, a few centuries later in the whoa, 1500s. Whoa, 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 what? Yeah, Venice became Gu- the world's was, printing city. Was, this is where did Gutenberg come to Venice? So all of the all you know all of the important um, books and and especially cookbooks yeah. in the Renaissance were were all printed and published in in Venice. No way. And so Venetians had this unique sort of situation where not only were all these incredible ingredients and and people from all different you know known cultures at the time were all yes. in Venice. Yeah. Uh, mingling, you know, <laughs> and uh, and dining and eating together, but also these books were being printed um, in Venice in in the Renaissance. So um, it was a really unique place for all of this exchange, and um, and as a result, I think that you'll find that the food in Venice has has got you know um, has taken something from that. So even now, yeah. five hundred years later, a thousand years later, you still see this sort of evidence of. Um, of what Venice was like then. Now, I know you want to, you, you're doing a really, really beautiful segue to start talking about food, but can I just be a little bit rude and just extrapolate a little bit more on that yeah. um, and, and go back? Just this whole notion of um, Venice in, in its time was a great example of the city-state. You know, it's sort of like, you know, the um, if we think about this uh, uh, in contemporary times, we think about maybe New York, we think about London, uh, Singapore, obviously. But it is that, that rise of the, even though it was the capital of the Veneto area, was its own being, was it not? Yeah, it was, you would call it, it was called La Serenissima, well, the most serene, you know, uh, and it was a republic. Yes. And it was it was huge, and it lasted an impressive, you know, eleven centuries. Um, so this Venetian Republic wasn't just the city that you see now. The city um, now it was was sort of the the, the bustling market and the, and the sort of the meeting point. But really, mm. Venice extended throughout the whole Mediterranean. They had parts of the Dalmatian coast. They had colonies in Greece. They had Crete and Cyprus. Um, so they had a really it was it was much bigger than, than, you know, just the little the little lagoon city that it is now. Yeah. Now, and just to, for those that maybe are a little bit uh, geographically challenged, can you just maybe just describe on the boot, on the leg of, uh, of Italy, where is Venice? So Venice is the very, um, you would say, the top, the top eastern corner of, um, of the it- Italian peninsula. Gotcha. And and it's in a and it's in a lagoon, and the lagoon itself is, um, you know, a really strong sort of a part of Venice's identity because it's it's really just it's you know it's floating out there, yeah, and uh, in the sea. It's not uh, you know not attached to the mainland aside from the train track that comes in now. You know, and you come in on the train, um, but otherwise Venice is this sort of fish shaped series of, of islands, um, you know, and there are hundreds of other small islands in that lagoon as well. Yeah, they say, I think there's about 118 small islands. And it's also like when we speak yeah. of Italy, we, we talk a lot about, you know, whether it's north of the Po or south of the Po. I know Matt's uh, my producer. We've, we've had these talks many, many times. But this is right in, um, what is it, the, the mouth of the Po and the Piave rivers? I'm not oh, saying I right. don't know much about the rivers, but yeah. Uh, okay. yeah, yeah anyway, it's, yeah, but it's it's yeah, but as you say, it's just it's it's out there. It's this 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 group of islands. So um, let's okay, let's go to contemporary uh, Venice 
and uh, just what a glorious playground um, it is. And you were telling, we had a great conversation about how um, during the the epidemic that we're all living through, you managed to find yourself in Venice when there weren't the hordes of tourists everywhere. Yeah, yeah it was quite amazing. I think... Um I think everyone was sort of curious to see what what on earth Venice looked like, um, mm. you know, without without tourists. And it, as soon as we came out of, well, I, I live in Tuscany, so Tuscany has a similar, you know, and Florence uh, has a very similar situation where it's a very small population compared to the number of of tourists that you're usually visiting at at any one time. But and those bloody cruise boats. Yeah, Venice has uh, particularly is, is more affected because those cruise ships just come straight in. And um, you know, and it's and the laneways are so small, and it's very it's a much smaller population. It's only fifty thousand people, but can get to twenty million, you know, in a in a summer. So it's 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 quite it's quite crazy. As soon as we got out of lockdown in twenty twenty, I um, went to Venice, met up with um, some friends, and we spent a weekend in Venice um, eating cicchetti as much as we could and everywhere we could, and just sort of enjoying um, the city. You know, basically to ourselves, it was it was a really I think unique moment in history to see Venice with, like that. without hearing um, American tourists complaining yeah. about cobblestone streets and why don't they pave them? <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I, I had a similar experience in Paris years and years ago, but uh, digress. Let's talk about the idea, the notion of Cicchetti. So Cicchetti are. Um, Am I saying uh, right? You could. You know you're not. No, so yeah, that's it. I can tell. I just hang about. I'm doing it for myself. Ow! Okay, I'll slap myself. Say it properly for me. Chiquetti. Chiquetti. Okay. Yeah. Better. Perfect. Oh, good. Yes. They are. Um, they are small bites. You could. You know. It's a lot of people compare them to tapas, but as I think we had this discussion that at, at the Queen Vic Market. Mm. Um, uh, the Venetians are quite sensitive about that. They're not tapas. Uh, you can't say they're tapas. And, no. and they do have very different um, histories and, and they play very different roles in both, you know, those cultures. But but the idea is sort of a small thing that you can eat with, with one hand and yes. standing. So you don't need a plate. Um, you've got the other hand is busy holding a glass of wine usually mm. or maybe a spritz. Mm. And so it needs to be something that you can eat easily in like one or two bites. A little small, a small thing, which is literally what chiquetti means. And um, oft times, a little bit salty. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the idea is these these little um, uh, these little glasses. They are smaller than a than you know. Than, it's not, we're not drinking like big wine glasses. Um, they're, they're usually a small glass, and um, you know. A, a few mouthfuls of, of wine. These are very cheap, and also the chiquetti themselves are very cheap. You know, one one or two euro, um, nothing wow. over two euro for wow. you know a, a little crostino with you know topped with a fried sardine or maybe um, you know artichoke bottoms or um, <laughs> um, boiled eggs with anchovies over the top and other lots of other little things. Um, these are all very very cheap, but you know the idea, especially. Um, in the 50s and the 60s, these sort of enterprising hosts 
needed to make sure that they were making enough money yeah, with the, these very cheap small drinks, these very cheap small bites. We want and that so, second or third glass of wine to be ordered. Thanks very much. Yeah, so, you know, the idea was make it salty, make it spicy, or make it hard to swallow. Mm, that was, and that's <laughs> that the, the boiled that eggs. They would buy another drink. You, you were saying the boiled eggs were quite popular because of that. Yeah, I mean, I love a boiled egg, personally, mm. and I love a boiled egg with an anchovy on top even better. Um, but you'll find it's really hard to eat a boiled egg without washing it down with something afterwards. So it's actually the perfect chiquetta because if you've run out of wine, you'll definitely order another one. And, um, you know, if you have a cristina with, with something sort of salty and spicy like, a, like you know, a gorgonzola picante, that's like... The ideal sort of chiquetto gorgonzola with a with a little you know, anchovy slunk over the top of it. Yes. And uh, yeah, you'll need to order another drink after that. Oh yeah, but um, but it must be. Can you paint us a word picture about what what is the reality of Venice and and how does it look and how does it smell and and yeah, what, what does it look like? Well, Venice to me, I think the thing that that. Um, that strikes me most every time I go there mm. um, is the lack of, there's no traffic. And so it, it's quiet. You don't hear, you know, there's no cars, there's no scooters, there's no, no you're right. um, yes. you know, you're on foot. You have the boats, obviously, through the canal, but you're really on foot. And Venetians travel on foot everywhere they go. And, um, you know, so you're, you're going to meet a friend at a certain place, you're going to zigzag your way through this laneway through this maze of tiny little streets, some of them are, you know, you could extend both of your hands and you'll be touching the walls on both sides. So some of these laneways are really narrow. Um, some are even narrower than that. <laughs> and, um, and you're, you know, and you weave your way through. Um, most tourists don't do that. They, they will just stick to the main roads that have the signs. Uh, but you're still on foot. And that's, I think, something that really is, is so characteristic about Venice is that you're... You're walking from place to place every time you need to move, and um, you know stopping in for a bite to the at a chiquetti bar, which are called bacari. Um, stopping in for a bite here or meeting somebody there, um, it, bumping into other people. This is really like a, a one of the aspects of this sort of very casual, casual way of eating chiquetti. Hmm. I mean, it, it must be conscious of just walking in the footsteps of history. Oh, absolutely! Every everywhere, oh everywhere you go. I mean, it's a little bit different yeah. from you know walking in Melbourne. Go, well, look at this ancient building here. From that was built in eighteen fifty. Wow, yeah. <laughs> that's but that's nothing, is it? It's nothing, no. And and uh, you know, some of my favourite chiquetti bars are around the market, and the market itself, you know, dates to the Middle Ages, <sighs> the Rialto Market, and around there is where you'll find you know, these really, really traditional chiquetti bars, and they are still situated in the same buildings that 500 years ago were osteria for travellers coming through Venice. They would they would sleep upstairs, and on the ground floor there'd be, you know, wine and little bites to eat um, available for, for, for people. Those were the, you know, those were essentially the chiquetti's ancestors, those little bites to eat. Mm. And now uh, those those same bars that you find around the market are, are still you know sort of doing exactly the same thing that they were in the 1400s and probably earlier. My God, it, it sounds incredible. Now the uh, the name of the book is uh, Cinnamon uh, and Salt. 
Um, and I'm, uh, we've got maybe a couple minutes um, left, Amiko, to, to have a chat. And I was wondering if maybe you might uh, give us an idea of uh, maybe something nice that we could do at home and maybe something that might inspire people to go out and uh, purchase your rather lovely book. Oh, yes. Well, you know, the, the very simplest chiquetti, I've got a page on, like, how to make chiquetti. So if you wanted to, you know, recreate, um, you know, Venetian chiquetti at home, they're so simple mm. because they're really only, like, one or two toppings. So I included, like, a little list of those kind of things um, that aren't really – they're sort of non-recipes. And then the rest of the book are, are the really Venetian things um, – like the sardine sour, which are the fried, the fried sardines with onions and and sultanas, and then there's a bacala mantecata, which is my favourite, the so whipped cod. But even just the really simple things, like uh, you know maybe a gorgonzola with 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 fig or um, salami with pickles, you know topping a crostino, those kind of things make um, make a really beautiful little platter. I think the nice thing about chiquetti is to have like a variety. Of, of different things on the one plate um, that make them, you know, uh, look really appealing. Mm. And um, and then I have a chapter also on fried things because fried things should never be missing from um, from a, a range I'm, of... I'm seeing Matt smile there going, yes, he's all for that. Yes, I'm all for that too. <laughs> but, you know, they're really very, very simple. They um, are. Something like... The skia fritte, which I really love, I just I just live um, sort of very very small prawns. I guess school prawns. We school call them prawns, in yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're just dusted in flour and um, and thrown into some frying oil, and and that's it. And then you you know they come out super crispy. You eat them whole. And in in Venice, you would serve them on top of really creamy polenta. So you would take a bite of this, and you'd get this really creamy soft, comforting polenta and this really crispy, crunchy, salty prawn. And um, it's it's really it's a very, very simple but really beautiful dish. And before you know and it, you're ordering another glass of wine. Over here, yeah. two, two more glasses of wine, please. Ah, got you with, the, <laughs> exactly. with, with those things. Uh, how much is this book? I believe it is... Oh, that's a good question. I believe it's $40. <laughs> yeah, I and, think, I think uh, that sounds about right. Have I got the press release here? Does it say... I think it's usually about $40. Um, yeah. Have a look at the um, Hardy Grant. It's uh, it's very, very easy. Cinnamon and salt. Um, it was just lovely hanging out with you at the Queen Victoria Market uh, for a big Thank spaghetti you, weekend for Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. And it is a delight, again, uh, to catch up with you. And, uh, and I hope you sell many, many of these books. When are you heading back up north? Going back to Italy on Monday. Uh, Monday... <sighs> From a week Sorry, can I say that? <laughs> <laughs> no, we wish you bon voyage. And uh, what do you have a you have a place up in Tuscany? Uh, like a, Matt's like giving me the wind in... up, okay? But I just, I had to ask Matt. <laughs> <laughs> do you live in yes. Tuscany? I live in Tuscany. Yeah, oh. yeah, I do. I, I I live in San Miniato, which is near Florence, just my, outside of Florence. My shoulders have just dropped a little bit just thinking about how fortunate your life is. But you make oh. your reality, and congratulations on that reality you've created and this cookbook that you've created too. Um, it's been a pleasure taking us away from well Easter Sunday here in Melbourne and uh, indulging us in the the beautiful city state that is Veneto. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. 
Venezia, I should say. Veneto is the. She, do you see, she didn't <laughs> correct me then. That was very, very good. We about. should, we should, we should replace the swear jar with the Italian correction jar. Every time you need to be corrected on your Italian pronunciation, another two dollar coin. That's going to cost a fortune, Matt. <laughs> I'm going to be in the red. Uh, we, we've got Duncan Buchanan up next. Triple R. So now it's time for Duncan Buchanan's wonderful world of wine. Mm-mm. Yeah, give me some of that. Give me some of that fat wine stuff. Uh-huh. I came in a little bit early then, didn't I? Just a little bit. <laughs> I'm still getting the hang of this. Duncan Buchanan, you beautiful human being. How are you? Cam, Cam Smith, Matt Stedman, all you wonderful <laughs> listeners. Happy oh. Sunday. Happy Easter Happy. Sunday to y'all. Mm-mm. Has the Easter Bunny Bilby thing been good to you? <laughs> Yeah, it was good to me. It was better to my kids, as they tend to be. Yeah, but what we're in, find the fine parents that Lucy and I are, we just jacked them up on you and shipped them off to their grandparents for the day. And then you get, <laughs> and then you jacked up on uh, oh, East Kid Shiraz or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another thing is they give those children back anyway. Yeah, maybe, well, maybe, maybe damn, one day they won't. The rocker came back. Uh, well, I've, got, I've grown to quite like him, so you know he can stay. Oh, good. It's been nine years. He, yeah. He's in. Uh, now we have uh, vintage twenty twenty two. Yep. Um, how's she looking hey, there, boss? Well, it's done. People have picked everything pretty much, unless you've got <laughs> Cabernet on top of a very high hill in southern Tasmania somewhere. But for the <laughs> vast majority of it, it's that's picked. Yeah, right. And um, and people. It's a bit of a double-edged sword. People are happy because quality's been pretty good. It was well worried, like you know. Remember, it was, there was talk of rain right the way there through. Was the this la- fungus. There was talk of fungus and and terrible <laughs> things, and going to the back of the winemaker's shed and pulling out mm. the Bordeaux powder and more. Yeah. But it, it, well, okay. This is if you are south of the Murray. You're kind of okay. South of the Murray, you yeah, know, okay. Oh, know, yeah, of course, it, yes. Yeah, north of the Murray. Yeah, don't if you know, it's, there's a fair bit of rain up around there. Yes. But, but, so the quality's been good, and the, the, the ripening season was fairly cool. So it was relatively cool yes. and relatively dry. And as I've bunged on about that years on this program, the most varieties do enjoy ripening in autumn. So they just develop – their flavour development happens a little bit slower, and mm. they just sort of – they it works better so – and that has happened and, well, but the yeah. And you were saying that the hunter kind of escaped the the terrible ravages of flood uh, because they most people, and we're generalising, were able yeah. to get their stuff off the vine before the the, uh, the proverbial happened. Yeah, the vast majority did. Like the early, most of the whites got off in good shape, and uh, quite a bit of the reds. But the mm. headache was there was still some um, still some good quality fruit on the vine. But a few people that I was talking to out there said they just couldn't get couldn't physically get into the vineyards to pick the fruit. It was just oh, so that's right. wet. You couldn't get the tractors yeah. in. Yeah, you couldn't get tractors in, and on some of the bigger places up there, they'll they'll pick mechanically, and they're they're yes. a fairly decent sized machines. So it's just difficult to get them in. It must be a bit of a heartbreak to see this stuff. <laughs> you know, you've spent all season growing. You're like, oh. I just can't get it in there. And God, of yeah. course, there's the, there's the whole lack of labour too. Like, it's difficult to get people. We I found that myself just trying to organise picks this year. It's like you are flat out on the blower, just trying to get people to come in and pick the grapes for you. So. 
I think the um, Hunter was, I'm not going to say it wasn't affected, but mm. it's a fair way, fair way south, 600 odd okay, k south of Lismore and the areas that were really, really hit hard by those floods. But um, so they weren't affected as badly, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the greatest end of the season that they wanted. No, and, and it's weird because that doesn't, in a strange way, we are um, very, very parochial when it comes to uh, drinking our wine. That You know, there's not yep. a lot of, um, Hunter Valley reds in uh, or whites in 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 my extensive cellars. No, 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 exactly. Yeah. But I yes, think I wander that... around at night time. You know, <laughs> exactly. Bump talk, into the don't... the Seminole Library. <laughs> you and me both can. Yeah, as, as, as I want to do. Yes, but uh, but, but um, my point is that we don't really buy a lot of stuff north of the Murray here in Victoria. I mean, we. We drink to Mornington, we drink to Heathcote, and you know our, our areas, correct? Yeah, a lot of people do, but I think it's a. I think the point you're trying to make is maybe give some people a hand and uh, mm. you know explore, go a bit further. I mean, that's. I think it's a great thing about Australian wine. You can drink from all over the drink all over Australia and get so many different expressions of um, certain grapes because they'll be grown in different regions, you know? Yeah, yeah, true. True, Dad. So have a good look around. But, but overall, people were happy. The thing is, there's a lot – there were crops were down a lot, and this is, been, this is a big factor too. You've got the double whammy of labour being scarce, therefore it's expensive. Yep. And then you've got low crops, so that becomes expensive fruit because regardless of how many, how many tonnes you grow per hectare, it's still going to cost you the same amount to run that hectare. Yeah, so well, if you pour... in, in a way, it's sort of a, a tender mercy if you're low on, on, on crew to pick that there's, the yields are down a bit because it would be doubly so if there's no one to pick and there's monster, you know, monster crops. Yeah, very true. And uh, But it just, adds to the, it just adds to that cost of production. I was chatting with... Um, uh, Dylan McMahon from Seville, he was, and he was, you know, overall Seville estate out in the Yarra Valley. Yep. And he was saying, yeah, stoked with quality, but it's just, you know, the the, the crops just, uh, the the quantity it just isn't there. And I, you know, spoke, I just, you know, picked the brains of people all over Victoria, and some people were up to eighty percent down on what they thought they were going to get. Whoa. Okay, and that's that, that's down. Had, that's down. Yeah, that's that's the extreme and is case. That La Nina uh, specifically, or what? Well, it's a, a, you put it put it down to the wind we had over spring. Oh yeah, because that blew off a lot of the flowers. So the um, exactly right. Yep, 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 so yep, the, yep. I remember us talking about that. The flowers just don't set in the berries, so the fruit is physically just not there. And mm. on top of that, you've got this um, the bunch weights just because they were they were small, so you've got these very very tiny tiny bunches, and it's still. You know, getting back to trying to get that fruit in. Mm-hmm. If you've got a bunch of grapes that weighs, say, half a kilo, which very rarely, do, you know, not very uh, many grape wine grape varieties have bunches that big. It takes one snip to cut that bunch. But if you've got a uh, a bunch that weighs, say, fifty grams mm-hmm. rather than half a kilo, still takes one snip to cut that. So it's still it's that physical, it. um, yeah, it. just trying to get over that whole thing. So thank you for that uh, mental you know, image there, Mister Buchanan. No, that's. Uh, that does help. Can I? Um, we need to address. Um, oh, I'm going to get slapped in this. I'm going to use cliche. <laughs> the elephant in the room. Ow! Mm. Matt, stop Ouch. hitting me. Um, smoke taint. Yeah, there was some concerns. I'm not going to go into I know, you know with what? it. But, yep, yep. Yeah, but there's a, there was some concern about planned burns that had happened around the place, very very close to vintage. And this is it's a really difficult one. A couple of the. Um, 
uh, you know, parents that I know through school have, um, you know, they work for Delph or whatever they're called, and they do these fires. Yes. And there's a constant battle between, you know, it's where agriculture meets forestry management, I suppose. Yeah, but they've got to, work, know, they, they've got to bloody work it out, you know? I know there's a lot of consultation that goes on with it. And, you need to you bang know, some I, heads I, together. I, I mean, I put my... I put my very practical hat on, and this. You what know, does I, that I, look I, like? I, oh, it's not very pretty, believe me. Okay. But um, <laughs> but the green felt. If you've got, if you've got a um, if you've got some crops on the vine and yeah. there's smoke near it, they can get tainted. But if if we jump, jumped up and down as winemakers and said you're not allowed to do that plan burn, we've got fruit on the vine, and then there's a bushfire, and, and there's a lot die. of damage. Yeah, or, oh, yeah, or, or, or and, there's or, death. People, animals, houses, the whole lot gets you know, gets affected. Yeah. Not going to be looked upon too favourably, and it's a very it is a very difficult one because a lot of the areas that grow grapes are but national forest. Yeah, they do right. well. I, I don't know. know. So, there's there's going to have to be some sort of um, consistent guidelines that are going to have to come out of this because we keep running into this uh, uh, so much. Uh, we'll be back with Duncan Buchanan talking about. The possibility of uh, low alcohol wine after this. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Triple R sponsors. Back with Duncan Buchanan for his uh, wonderful world of wine. Uh, We've just been speaking about the controversial uh, notion of smoke taint. Low alcohol wine. Speaking of controversial, let's talk about low alcohol booze. Go on. it's an interesting topic, I reckon. You sort of – I had a good chat with a, a bloke who sells my, my Prosimo wines, a guy called Cam Smith. He's got uh, his own label called Range Life. Right. And he's done a low-alcohol version around the room, of that. Right? And, and him and I were having a, um, a good chat about it the other day. The low, the, the low and zero alcohol thing is going to be huge. As, yeah. In his words, he said the smoking lobby's got nothing to complain about now, so they're going to take a, take aim at booze. Yes. But uh, that thing of – what do you get when you when you make a low or zero alcohol wine? What what do you how do you do it? And what are you left with? Yeah, what, um, and that and that is the most important question. What have you stripped out? Yeah, so there's a, there's a bit of a process that goes through it. Essentially, the wine gets deconstructed and put back together without the alcohol. And because if you look at something like beer that yeah. has say give or take four or five percent alcohol, something like that, if you take that alcohol out or reduce it, you're not it's not a massive component of that product mm. that's being altered. Mm. But if you go stripping all the alcohol out of wine, that's, say typically between twelve and fourteen percent, you're messing with a big... space time continuum. Oh man, it messes with my melon, man. Yes, and um, like, and so they're trying but, to look at. No, sorry. No, I was going to say just to be a little bit more helpful. You are stripping out the, the very characteristics of the wine, and we uh, say a sav blanc, which mm. you know some people love those characteristics, but you might take all of those away. Yeah, and you, you can't. You can, yeah, exactly. You can't just strip out that one thing. And my my point is, and I've said this over and over, we have one. We have one ingredient, and that's wine grapes. Mm. So from that, and as they as the as the yeah, wine right. the grapes mature, you get more sugar, you get more flavour, you get more tannin, you get more colour. Well, all those things sort of happen in, 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 together. Yes. So once you go taking one of those things out, it just sort of messes with the whole interplay. And I've tried, I've tried, you know, wines of various. Um, uh, you know, when you take the alcohol at varying alcohol levels, and they're sort of, I don't know. I think there's some really good examples. Yes. Um, but from my point of view, I think I'd sooner just have the regular thing of the, you know, 
wine with all the alcohol and just have less. You know, this was the mantra way back in the day when Arnie and I used to do plonk. The summer fill for you guys. Mm. And our, our mantra was don't drink, more, dr- don't drink more, drink better. And that's still the mantra. Yes. I, I would, and uh, it's so just a, you, par- Paraphrasing, you'd rather have one glass of just really beautiful wine than a whole bunch of glasses of stuff where there seems to be elements missing. Exactly, and that, and I think that's the point that needs to be made. It's like, what sort of drinker are you? What, what do you want to be? Are you happy to have a glass with your meal and that's good? Or mm. do you want to sit at the barbecue and have three or four glasses of something that's lower alcohol? And that's that's the decision that people have to make. And it's it's I think it's it's a very intrinsic part of wine, the, that alcohol content, and it, bal- it balances everything out because all those other things, as I said before, have matured in the grape together. Yes. But a complete, it's, what I would recommend people to do is just try some. I mean, my mum doesn't drink, but she'll have a glass of her zero-alcohol wine, in inverted commas, with me at, at her place. And God bless. Doesn't, do, doesn't do it for me. Hi, this is Cam Smith, and you've been listening to the podcast of Triple R's Eat It, a weekly radio show about food and drink, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website.